HTML is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey, everybody. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And the two of us just spoke more than the Winter Soldier is going to speak in his own film. You're only barely exaggerating on that. And that's going to be a running theme here. For a movie that is all about a character, he barely shows up, and when he does, he is just the winter scowl. Yeah, essentially, for the parts that we even can see that part of his face. And that is a really funny thing to me, because I guess I didn't remember that Cap wasn't supposed to know that it was Bucky going in, and I guess because the name of the movie is The Winter Soldier, I'm like, oh, Cap knows he's in The Winter Soldier, he knows it's about to be Bucky. So when the big dramatic face mask part comes off, if it weren't for the fact that he has that ridiculous hair, I never would have believed Cap couldn't recognize his own true love's eyes. Nice. And, you know, I think that you hit something really well just there. That is the sentiment of all of the Winter Soldier. Basically, everything about the Winter Soldier is a foregone conclusion, and we are just watching it play out. You know that Cap is going to have to start working outside of the institution you know that the government institution is going to be corrupt and be taken down. We all know that Bucky is the Winter Soldier. So it's just watching it play out where everybody else figures this stuff out and then moving on into the next phase of the story. Hot take. I think one of the things that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is best known for is only taking very strategically calculated risks. They don't deviate from the comics in ways that could ultimately hurt the franchise by becoming completely unrecognizable or unsynonymous with the core of the character. Spider-Man got put back in high school because that's what you know him as. They weren't going to give us a mid-twenties chemical engineer Peter Parker. There was no chance that Bucky was only going to have this period of time as the, you know, mind-controlled evil Winter Soldier. I mean, he's only in that state for about 20 issues, if that. I think it's Captain America 13 of the run that introduces him is the run that resets his memory so that he knows he's Bucky and he's no longer the Winter Soldier. By the way, it's done with a Cosmic Cube, which is the Marvel Comics version of the Tesseract. Anyway, Bucky's only a bad guy for about a year, a year and a half. So there's no way that Marvel Cinematic was going to let Bucky be a bad guy for some considerable amount of time. The foregone conclusion here was Bucky was going to soften and eventually be given his own movie franchise. There was no other outcome that you could have reached from this film series, not with the way they seated him in the first movie, and not with giving him the title of the second movie, despite giving him fewer lines than there are words in the title. It's a goddamn in the station of the Metro situation. So ultimately, we just needed to sit patiently and watch what we knew was going to happen play out. And it's not even that it's bad. I unfortunately have to report that this film still isn't entirely my cup of tea. It's very 1970s conspiracy spy thriller. That's just not a genre I love, to be honest. And as much as I appreciate that you're pointing out that it's a genre situation, it's that it's too many genres packed into one at times. I don't think that the Black Widow is a consistent character from the beginning of this film to the end of this film. I don't think the nature of her relationship with Steve is consistent. And it's hard to tell how much of that is performance on the character's part and inconsistency on the production part. And that, of course, brings us to everybody's favorite segment. I really appreciate hearing back from people with this show. We've been getting a lot of great feedback, and the consistent feedback we've been getting is the behind-the-scenes tour de force research that Kevo brings to the table. Not only defines how we discuss the films, but it defines how we look at them. 
and how we perceive them after the fact. We're going to get to some amazing stuff, and I don't want to spoil anything, but we're going to have a really interesting conversation in the next few episodes about casting, and it's led to some really great places that we're going to go creatively, especially with Phase 3. Anyway, Kevo, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. Let's BTS this Cap 2 situation. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you mentioned spoilers, because unfortunately, the first person I'm going to talk about, the cinematographer for this film, Trent Opalock, is vaguely responsible for a Avengers Endgame spoiler. Captain America, the winter spoiler. He hasn't really done a ton of work. He consistently works with Neil Blomkamp. He did the cinematography for District 9, which I believe is a super awkward alien racism parable. Uh, and he did the cinematography for Elysium, which has Matt Damon hotness in it, which is great. But other than this, Cap 3, and the last two Avengers movies, he doesn't really have a lot of work, which I guess is why he was so eager to put on his resume that he was the cinematographer for Avengers Endgame before the title was announced. Who can blame it? Everybody who's a part of these movies right now, I feel like, is in the right place to catapult to the next thing. You never want to be the last person to leave your Broadway cast. You never want to be the last person to get a new show. And, you know, to be honest, I don't think I had ever heard that point brought up until a video we just recently watched mentioned it. So it's not as though it was some big explosive spoiler that the cinematographer released the title. People were also talking about Avengers Annihilation and a whole bunch of other titles. It wasn't until Endgame was officially released that we knew and were, like, definitive about it. It's just funny. And I do think it's important to note that something we're talking about is that this guy was on this Captain America as well as the Avengers Endgame's films because... The Captain America guys, the Russo brothers, are the ones who are going to inherit the Avengers franchise from Joss Whedon. And it's because, and I don't think there's any other way to put it, Civil War is an Avengers film. In every way that counts, when we get to that thing, it's just an Avengers film. Oh, yeah. And it sort of almost apologizes for Ultron. But I'm getting off track. I'm jumping ahead of myself. It is really important to see how these films switch over to become the films that control the franchise. Well, yeah, it's almost this entire team that comes back for the final Avengers films. The only person who's different is the composer Alan Silvestri, who is the returning composer from the first Avengers film. So it makes sense that they'd go with him. Which isn't to say that Henry Jackman isn't, you know, a genius in his own right and didn't do an amazing job with this film. Didn't he score Wolverine? Uh, Henry Snick? I know you're being funny, but actually, he did do the score for X-Men First Class. I was about to cut that joke, but now I feel vindicated it stays. Yeah, no, he's actually done a ton of stuff. He's a guy. He's the son of keyboardist and arranger Andrew Price Jackman, who was a member of The Sin, who worked for many years with Chris Squire of Yes, and his grandfather, Bill Jackman, played the clarinet on the Beatles' When I'm 64. I dig yes, I have no relationship with when I'm 64, but all fascinating pieces of information that I think are important to know. I definitely like the clarinet bit does stand out to me, but I don't really have a significant relationship with that song either. But yeah, he's a dude. His mentor was Hans Zimmer, so he worked with Hans Zimmer on a bunch of stuff like the Da Vinci Code, Pirates of the Caribbean 2 and 3, the Simpsons movie, weirdly enough. He did the score for Winnie the Pooh in 2011. I see as well in your notes, because I'm looking over your shoulder, that he also did the Wreck-It Ralph movies. Yes, he did. He did both of them. He did Big Hero 6. He did both of the Kingsman movies. 
I really find this note you have about Predator really funny. Can you talk about that for a second? Oh, yeah. So Henry Jackman does the score for The Predator in 2018 using themes from the original Predator that were done by Alan Silvestri, who, as I just mentioned, is the other composer for The Avengers. I really think that's some kind of cool balance in the universe there. Yeah, one of his upcoming films is Detective Pikachu this year. Also of note, because here we are on Cage Club, I wanted to mention that he co-produced Seal's unreleased 2001 album Togetherland, and This Could Have Been Heaven was co-written by him and used in the Nicolas Cage film The Family Man. Well, Cage Club, look, we're doing you proud, guys. I did it. We see the return on this film of screenwriters Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who were announced three months prior to the film's release as writing the script for the sequel. You know, it's funny, when I was reading up on that, I saw that there were quotes from Chris Evans saying the sequel might not come out until 2014, which, when he said it in September of 2011, sounded so much further away than it was, but in the eight years since that statement was made, 15 Marvel Cinematic Universe films have been released. It just kind of feels like there's almost too many of them, but there aren't, but there is, but there's not. It's just that I feel like there's so many of them that contribute such a small portion, or are forgettable and overlookable, like Dark World. In many ways, this is one of those movies, I know we've already talked about how so much of this was a foregone conclusion, Well, what's interesting is that apparently Winter Soldier wasn't a 100% foregone conclusion. Marcus and McFeely knew that they wanted to do Ed Brubaker's Winter Soldier run, but it took them six months of psyching themselves up to actually be able to do it. So I can't imagine what Cap 2 would have been if they hadn't been able to. I can only imagine it would have focused more on Crossbones and the actual shield Hydra of it all. I think in trying to do all of this... So much of it feels too thin to be its entire story. I think there also probably would have been more Zola, too. There were talks about seeing his robot body in this version of the film and there being more focus on him. But instead, they wanted to lean into the 60s, 70s political thriller conspiracy theory element. And as it is, having him appear on the screen is a little bit too sci-fi supernatural for a story like this, so I'm not surprised they pulled back even more. I think they managed to do it stylistically well enough, but we'll get to that. And then the last portion of the the behind-the-scenes here is Anthony and Joey Russo taking their first film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I don't know about everyone else, but I was already pretty familiar with their work, having been a huge fan of many sitcoms that they have directed several episodes of. It is fascinating that their background is sitcom. And it like 100% is. They directed two films before this one. A remake of an Oscar-nominated 1958 Italian caper film that was called Welcome to Collinwood and You, Me, and Dupree, which apparently is about cuckolding. So shout out to Nico, too. Wow. That's okay. Wow. I'm really everywhere. Good for me. Yeah, good for you. Their substantial work before this was they directed tons of TV pilots, whether they made it to air or not. They co-directed the pilot for Arrested Development, for Community, for Happy Endings, which is a show that means a lot to the two of us. And it was actually specifically Joey Russo's work directing the second season finale of Community that caught Kevin Feige's attention and made him want to work with these directors. There is something that is very fitting that Community could help shape 
the landscape of a film that would lead to work where half of everyone in existence is wiped away by a snap. There is something very community about that nihilism, and I'm sure community would be proud shamed of themselves right now. I can definitely see that. Also, apparently, Joe Russo is an actor who uh, appears in all of the MCU films that they direct. In this one, he appears as the doctor who is helping Nick Fury after he fakes his death. The one who mentions that he has a collapsed lung, the guy with the glasses, that's Joe Russo. So, yeah. Well, that was the behind the scenes. Let's get to the in front of the scenes. Yeah, let's get Bucky done. What you want, Bucky Dangan? What you want, that fire Dangan? What you want, Bucky Dangan? Get cracking, get, get cracking. So as soon as this movie starts, it's already trying to get my affection because we don't open on Steve. We open on Sam, the Falcon. Yeah, that was actually a pretty cool choice. And it's one of the best things about this movie because I feel like this movie paved the way for Civil War to be a cap ensemble film because I feel this is the most superhero teamy ensemble solo movie so far. Yeah, okay, yes, I definitely see that. It was a very specific choice to give this film the ensemble it had. They stuck Cap with Nick Fury and Black Widow basically because they were like, what else are we going to do with him is literally what Kevin Feige said. They were just kind of there. Yeah, and it just sort of made sense. I think it ultimately built off of the first Avenger having a an ensemble that was really strong and set the stage for Civil War being a much more significant ensemble film than either of the two. As happy as I am with Sam coming in out of the gate, I do need to throw it over to Kevo for the oppressive heterosexuality. Because, you know, that's pretty much all I can talk about. But it's right there. It's right friggin' there for this one. Within five minutes of being introduced to Sam Wilson, he mentions that he wants Steve to come down and see his war buddies to impress the girl at the front desk. He doesn't say for his fellow soldiers who would probably get an enormous treat out of meeting Captain freaking America. No, impress the girl down at the front desk for me. So within five minutes, once again, we know that a male hero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is definitively interested in women, but any sort of hint of gay in anything is immediately a problem. It's just annoying. It's annoying. I don't disagree. But I do think it's important to note that not only did they find a way to get in heterosexuality way early in this movie, we actually get to the suit mad fast. Cap suits up at like five minutes. Yeah, we get uh, Natasha at about three minutes and six seconds into the film, and we immediately transition from her picking Cap up from his run into the first mission. I believe this is the quickest we have ever seen a Marvel superhero in suit, in active combat, so far in the MCU. Because Tony wears his Iron Man suit early in Iron Man 2, but that's not really the same as going into battle. Although I guess there has to be an honorable mention for Hawkeye in Avengers, right away at the beginning, but... Oh, you know, the hawk's in his nest. Yeah, I guess technically. Was he holding a bow and arrow during that scene? I can't remember, but now I'm trying to imagine him sitting in the middle of a government facility with his bow and arrow being taken seriously as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. It's like a straight guy holding a football the first time he gets a blowjob. It's just whatever gets him through the day. And today, that day features Batroc the Leaper. He is someone I know nothing of. I mean, he's real handsome. I like it. He's real cool. Good fighter. Great. Well, I mean, he's a bad guy, so he's not real cool. He's a bad guy. Bad guy. But it's one of those things, you just need to kind of fill these movies with minor villains 
everybody's kind of got to get that big ol' explosion fight out of the way at the beginning. Funny enough, the central villain of this one becomes the explosion fight at the beginning of Civil War, but that's jumping ahead. Yes, he does. So, I think one of the craziest things about, about this fight is how fast it goes, in a lot of ways. Like, I just, I feel like it's over as soon as it begins, and I guess it's only like, according to the notes, it's only about seven minutes. Well, here's what I have to say. This opening battle is something that I think feels longer when you are sitting through it, and then in retrospect, because there is so little to it, you think it's shorter. Something we noted a few times in this film is how long battle sequences drag on. Not go on, drag on. And then once they're over, there was so little weight to them that you're like, that could have been two freaking minutes. And I think the only real major thing to take away from this is this is where Black Widow first explains that she has other missions for S.H.I.E.L.D. And Cap sort of plays this unbelievable naivete card that I have an issue with. He seems to be just absolutely confused that the world's foremost spy secret agent, double agent, smartest woman in all of spydom would maybe have a second mission. He just seems baffled by this. And especially after that snooping that we saw him do in the Avengers where he found out that there are things that S.H.I.E.L.D. is not necessarily being 100% upfront about, it, like you said, is unbelievably naive for him to think that there aren't other agendas that he is not privy to. Okay, and it's, I know this is out of nowhere, but it really bothers me that it's a girl at the front desk. Why couldn't it have been a female soldier? Why couldn't it have been someone on his level? Why did it need to be the girl at the front Fuck, I, sorry. And the girl, not the woman. Couldn't mm-hmm. have been the woman at the front desk? Oh my god, fine. Mm-hmm. Sam, you have one flaw. It's that one scene, because I don't feel like Sam is ever like that again. My precious, wonderful, beautiful Sam, I love him so much. So, I feel like by the time this battle is over, and we're back at the Triskelion and Nick Fury shows up, I'm sort of, I don't want to say bored already, but I have checked out faster than I checked out of Avengers. Yeah, I think part of the issue is it takes forever for me to get what the plot of this film is other than Bucky's alive and Steve is going to find out. That's that's essentially the real core plot of this film, but the you know, conspiracy theory, warships, Robert Redford stuff, like, that really takes forever to get going. Absolutely. One of the things I think that we're not saying enough about Captain America, the Sundance soldier, is that Robert Redford's part in this film is baffling. Robert Redford's role is so incredibly ensconced, overshadowed, but plays off of the fact that it is Robert Redford. You almost can't believe that he really would ultimately be the bad guy of this movie. You just keep thinking, he's not going to kill his cleaning lady. He's killing his cleaning lady. Robert Redford, no, this is not helping aspiring independent filmmakers rise to prominence. It's just such a cheap trick to do that, to have Robert Redford kill his cleaning lady. It was really unnecessary and is clearly only inserted into the film to make us see, oh, he really is evil. And that bothers me. Absolutely. I feel like he exists in a lot of ways to act as some sort of anthema to Cap, because Cap really is about the heart of the American people and protecting people. And when Cap takes off the mask, Captain America is the same man under that hood. When Pierce takes off the mask... Pierce is actually a horrifying monster a la the Red Skull under there. And I... Oh, by the way, no, he looks totally normal. I mean his his soul. Yeah, He's real gross on the inside. And I don't know. 
I do think that this is where I feel you saying that they took six months to introduce Winter Soldier into this film does shine through in a lot of ways. It feels like I would have liked this much more if it was Butch Cappity and this Sundance soldier. Yeah. So wait, so you're saying that you feel like you could have done without Pierce. I'm saying either Pierce or the Winter Soldier, but this film did not have room for both. Yeah, I definitely see that. And I think because the Winter Soldier is Bucky and Sebastian Stan and the person for whom this movie is titled, he automatically stands out despite speaking so significantly less. And so Robert Redford just sort of becomes generic old white man. Yeah, generic old white man who becomes generic old bad guy. He does have one really cute moment, though. Well, no, I say half cute. I think it's cute when they reference other movies. So I like when he says that Nick Fury has to get Iron Man to come by his niece's birthday party. But for me, as a human, I'm like, why the hell would you want Tony Stark at a children's birthday party? Best case scenario, they're very young children and he just says some inappropriate things. Worst case scenario, she's 20 and he tries to bang one of her friends. So funny because you say niece and I'm immediately like, 20-year-old niece. Okay, yeah, I guess there could be, it could be an adult niece. Yeah, that's totally possible. He is old enough. I do agree. There is something really weird about that line. It's a cute tie-in, but it does feel kind of like a throwaway tie-in that could have been a little cleaner or a little tighter. I want to jump back slightly, though, for a moment and talk about the sadness of Peggy. Oh my god, there's so much sadness of Peggy in this film. It's too much, way too much sadness of Peggy. Like, I love the focus on the character. At this point, it's 10 months before Agent Carter would begin airing on ABC. So it's not like it was so close together that they were hyping the new show. They were just giving Peggy focus to help wrap up her story in the first Avenger. And I think also to make it a little bit easier to introduce her doppelniece. Oh my god, Ugh, but we'll get to that. Oh my god. I really... Uh, the dementia stuff makes me super uncomfortable and sad, though. It's such a needless downer. I do appreciate how, even through the dementia, they give her some moments of clarity where she can give Steve the kind of closure he needs, and even if she can't remember it, she does get the kind of closure she deserves. So I am glad for that, but yeah... The sadness there is just a little too much. However, from sadness there to, oh man, this movie is about to start moving at an unbelievable speed. Yeah, after we see Peggy and we meet Pierce, we get at about 27 minutes and 30 seconds to Fury's big scene. You know, it's funny. I feel like... Fury's role in this film is, is very similar to Happy Hogan's role in Iron Man 3. He gets attacked early on. It's an impetus for the plot. He's ultimately fine. Obviously, Fury has more of a contributing role to the climax of this film, but the parallel is very interesting. And I like that parallel. I do like that we're starting to see emerging patterns in hero groups, although I feel like Cap doesn't really get to have this team, and in so many ways, the magic that is the Avengers comes crashing down in that one scene early on in Ultra. I'm getting ahead of myself. I keep doing it. I can't stop. I can't stop. It feels like so much of Phase 2 is buying time. Yes, ultimately, a lot of Phase 2 is just setting up Phase 3. And it gets me itchy, because I'm watching six fucking movies where I feel like I only need about 15 minutes from any of them, if that much. But things are about to get speedy speed fast. Fury's about to be attacked, and 
It's going to be nuts. This Fury chase scene makes me wish this movie played up the importance of Nick Fury a little bit more. It's great to put the Winter Soldier in the title. But in so many ways, this is about so many soldiers. This Captain America movie is about so many soldiers and their duty to their team and their country. And that's Cap. That's the Black Widow. That's Nick Fury. That's the Winter Soldier. That's even Pierce in some ways. That's even Maria Hill. You know, thinking about you saying that just now, she has that great moment later where she helps bust out Black Widow and Captain America. And that's a really cool moment for Kobe Smulders. And even Crossbones and Falcon, who that fight sequence at the end, nothing was funnier than when at the end of the movie, when Falcon and Crossbones are facing off and Kevo goes, have they even been in the same scene yet? Nice to meet you. I'm going to beat your ass. Though I just need to get it on record. Frank Grillo as Crossbones is a type of hot that is reserved for so few villains. I don't always get the villains are mad hot thing, but because... We're introduced to him as Rumlow, and we can kind of, maybe he isn't the worst guy, and he's just so hot. No, he's the worst fucking dude. But he's I, never a great guy, even from when we're introduced to him. So when he's, like, just slightly more villainous than we imagined, we're like, all right, but we did sort of know this was going to happen. Yeah, when a guy's being an asshole at the bar, just don't be surprised when he's being an asshole when you get back to the bathroom. Basically. This is also the first appearance of Bucky in the film, and he appears for... Just slightly over one minute, once again, showing how little he is in his own film. It ends pretty quickly after that, though, when Nick Fury escapes through a hole in the sewer. And I always think to myself, wait a minute, Nick Fury just gets away? What? Yeah, because it is like a little bit silly the way he does it. I don't think that the tech is that silly. It's a little silly how quickly he's able to cut a hole through the street and dive into it. But, you know, it's it, it's a comic book movie. And not to be, like, silly, but there's so many things that I would change in this movie about the order of scenes and how they all come together. I feel like I would just have Fury wind up in the hospital from this scene instead of having it happen later. This is something that we've complained about in Excess for Podcast a number of times, where we feel like they're just buying our time to the end of the issue. These movies start to operate in these segments, like uh, like almost issues of an arc. I feel like some of these issues are buying time. And speaking of having a problem with the order of scenes and the attention of detail given, immediately after this, we are introduced to Sharon Carter. I don't know if they decided to go with the characterization that Sharon Carter is herself a terrible actor, or if it is just my lovely, lovely Emily Van Camp, who gives this really awkward laundry scene in the hallway, but, uh, go, but go ahead. So I really love Emily Van Camp. Anybody here who's ever watched the show Revenge, the first two seasons of Revenge, are some of the most fun, campy, amazing, dramatic TV I can think of. I think she's terrific. This is not her best role. And funny enough, the laundry scene here, I always cross the laundry scene between her and Cap here with the laundry scene between Molly Shannon and Eric McCormick on Will and oh Grace. God. And I get this really fun moment where he's like, so you're secretly a spy. And she's like, and you're a gay fella. And it's this really great moment in my head, but it's not a real moment. So, but it's not a hundred percent inaccurate because as cute as I found this scene, like, especially when... Steve thinks that she's rejecting him and says, I'll keep my distance. And she throws in, hopefully not too far. The smile on his face was so cute for as much as I rail against constant, constant in your face, hetero visibility. 
I, I liked that moment, but that's about the most romantic as they get. And the rest of this movie, the only love that Cap shows the entire time is for his boyfriend, Bucky. Well, I don't know. I think Nick Fury shows an incredible love for bleeding all over Steve's things in the next uh, sequence. Uh, he just can't stop bleeding. It's unbelievable. It's also worth noting that I love that the music that Nick puts on to cover their conversation is big band music. I just have to imagine that's already in Steve's record player, and that just makes him a little bit sexier somehow. Oh, because he still likes what he likes. He's true to himself, not the time, and that's really brazen and attractive. I also think it is unattractive that Agent 13 literally gets outed as an agent this scene. She just busts right the fuck in. Because here's the thing. So she first shows up at like about 33 and a half minutes into the film and shots are fired at about 36 and a half minutes. That whole scene of them talking in the hallway where she has that stupid fucking cover is immediately invalidated. We don't care about her as the neighbor, and now we immediately know that she's something else that we are going to have absolutely no time to focus on. We don't even find out in this movie that she's Peggy Carter's niece. When she says to him in the hallway, oh, it's my aunt, she calls me all the time. We don't find out, in terms of the film, who she's talking about until Civil War. Sorry your life's about to fall apart, thanks for banging my grandma. What you want, So here's my question for you, because this is always the question that I ask myself when we get to scenes like this in the MCU films. Did you believe that Nick Fury was dead here? I absolutely didn't believe that Nick Fury was dead here, but my belief was incorrect to the belief that I should have had. I automatically assumed that the Nick Fury that had been in this entire film so far had been an LMD, and Nick had been watching from some great distance since the Avengers, having gotten some whiff of this. Turns out, Nick Fury in the MCU is not quite as connected as I thought he was, and instead is just vaguely immortal. Vaguely immortal, yeah. I had really anticipated it being something a little bit more like Nick's been behind the scenes with, like, Hawkeye or something. So it is interesting that we've talked extensively about the fact that Hawkeye might have been in this movie and then ultimately wasn't. I think we've talked about it in every episode that isn't this. I don't know, man. I barely listen to myself when I talk. So, Hawkeye had almost been in this film because he was going to chase down Cap, and ultimately we were going to believe that Hawkeye was against Cap until the very end when he was getting the tracker off of Cap's suit. And then they were just sort of like, we don't want to pay Jeremy Renner for that little screen time, we're already doing that for Sebastian Stan. And we just did it for Thor, and we're not letting these two dudes get away with doing no work. Yeah, basically. So they just gave any of the significant stuff that Clint had to Natasha, which was a better use of Natasha's time for sure. I do think that Natasha is in many ways the unsung hero of the Cap movies. She appears so thoroughly connected to the S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff, and I feel like her presence is felt in these movies almost as if who they designed for Black Widow to be wound up informing Steve's films. Steve didn't have a universe he could carry with him the way Tony does. He has his side characters. Thor has his side characters. They gave Cap Natasha's world, and I think that reflects in how central Natasha is to the story. Well, every repressed, depressed gay guy needs a manic pixie best friend, so that's what Natasha is. I can't tell you how many Stucky fics exist out there where that is Natasha's purpose. I feel like 
I really need this AU now. And I feel like she's like, I'm going to bring my widow's bike to prom. And Steve is like, you don't need to go armed to everything. And she's like, I'm ready to widow's bite at prom. We're about to get to a really weird section of this film where things feel a little directionless. And a couple of times, I feel like Natasha sexually attacks Steve. Yeah, which unfortunately I don't feel is out of character for someone like her who is so coded male. I agree. I believe she's used to doing whatever it takes to get the mission done. And it's not a statement on her. It's a statement on the world that we make these people survive in. It's the it's what it takes to survive. And I think that she's done what it takes to survive as she's had what it takes to survive done to her. That's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. And something I very much hope they examine in the upcoming possibly R-rated Scarlett Johansson-led Black Widow's believed to be prequel film. Yeah, the only thing that I'm going to be sad about there is that there probably won't be any cap in that film, because I really love the dynamic between these two characters. Not knowing a ton about their background in the comics, I don't know how accurate it is to their relationship there, but I am a big fan of Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans working together. This was actually their fourth film together since 2004. They were both in the Mark Schwann film, The Perfect Score. They were both in the Nanny Diaries, and then obviously they were both in the Avengers. And I think the two of them have a really fun, really good dynamic between them. And I think that is part of what we can read into their relationship. They seem so comfortable on screen together. And that's, you know, actors can either be comfortable or uncomfortable with each other. But when you've done so many scenes together, and you're supposed to be these super spies who can fit into any scenario, you know, when you think about super great team-ups and super great duos you think about and i mean this with all seriousness i actually think about most of the law and order pairs where there was an older detective and a younger detective an older da and a younger da and the balance that created another one that really stands out uh, a little bit closer to this though is alias where right from the beginning carl lumbly and jennifer garner were able to play like they had years of spy experience together and i feel like that's what i'm seeing here yeah, absolutely. I always love the dynamic between the two of them, especially when you consider the fact that he is a black man who is 20 years Jennifer Garner's senior, and that and yet they have no problem with comfortability, playing off of each other, interacting. I never felt like he talked down to her. I never felt like she pushed back against him as an authority figure. I totally get it, and it's that kind of connection here. What's really funny, too, and I think it actually strangely applies. Black Widow is very much the Dixon or the Carl Lumbly character, with Cap as the Jennifer Garner or Sydney character, because Cap is kind of the younger, naive one in an interesting way, whereas Black Widow is very in charge, very alpha male. It's something that we were talking about earlier. One of the reasons I think Bucky having so little dialogue is interesting is because in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and even superhero movies as a rule, the characters that are, we're told are stoic and silent do tend to still have a million comebacks and a thousand lines and so much to say. And Bucky is decidedly silent in a way that I don't think is unusual to the unfortunate limited exposure that the women of the Marvel Cinematic Universe tend to get. I think Bucky barely speaks less than perhaps Sif or Frigga. And we act like he has so little dialogue because it's so unusual for a male to have so little dialogue especially a male who is dripping with masculinity the way they try and tell us Bucky is. Bucky is the bomb shit 
before Cap becomes Cap. He's this big alpha dude who protects his buddy Steve, and he's the big brother, and there's that implied threesome he gets to have before shipping back off, where he's an amazing soldier, and it's only when Cap comes back bigger, stronger, better, probably capable of regenerating back to uncut. Something like that that really blows Bucky's perception of his own masculinity away. But even then, Bucky is still such a masculine character in his own right. I commented to you earlier, I don't believe that in all of the first two films there is a single scene of Bucky Barnes where he is not in some sort of military uniform or his winter soldier garb, except for the flashback scene that we get of him walking Steve home from his mother's funeral. And as you pointed out, even there he's in a suit. So it's not like he's, you know, in crappy clothes. We are constantly presented with him as this very masculine figure. And yet he speaks less than Sleeping Beauty in her own film. But I'll get us back to that once Bucky actually speaks. And before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I think there is a very significant scene that we should probably discuss. Possibly one of the five most iconic Captain America moments in the entire Marvel Universe, I would say. It's this, it's the helicopter sequence, it's the fight with Thanos. This is just, obviously we're all talking about the elevator sequence. The elevator sequence. Yeah, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that that was used so frequently in the commercials because the way that it plays out on screen was really cool. The way the agents slowly filter in, Rumlow is a much better actor than Sharon Carter because his inquiry about getting a tag team ready feels completely natural, like as though he really doesn't think that they're about to beat the shit out of Captain America in five seconds. I absolutely agree. Everything about the performances in that sequence are great, and it's one of those moments where you really can understand, like, wow, Chris Evans, the way he moves, the way they have choreographed this, his, the way he fills out that screen, that little elevator. He's such a big man in that little elevator. It's one of those moments where I go, no, holy shit, this is a comic book. And I think this scene also really drew our attention to how dragging a lot of the other action sequences of the film are because the elevator sequence is literally one minute and the escape post-elevator sequence is another minute. So from the first strike against Cap to Cap riding away on a motorcycle is two minutes versus these eight to ten minute fight sequences that we keep seeing in this film that just drag on and on. All of which brings me back to some thoughts we had on the first film, which we thought, no matter how fun it was, dragged. I wouldn't say this movie drags. It gets slow and kind of weirdly boring, but there's just so much in this movie in a way there wasn't so much in the last movie. There's just too many plots here. So when something amazing like that elevator sequence is just one minute, it's really easy to see how in our heads it's like a five-minute badass motion sequence, but like it could never be longer than a minute and be that amazing. I get that. I think another problem as well is the nature of the conspiracy spy thriller they were going for and the fact that they keep throwing things out like, could Nick Fury be a double agent? Should Steve trust Natasha? And the fact is, they're fucking superheroes from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't genuinely believe that we are supposed to feel like Black Widow could be a villain in this movie, much like we probably wouldn't have been able to easily buy Hawkeye being a villain if he popped up in this one. So it's really just rigmarole and dragging out getting these people on the same side, and I think that's another reason that it feels like it drags. When Black Widow shows off that she got the USB stick that Steve not so cleverly hid in a vending machine, why would that man not have stopped him from putting it in the vending machine? 
But when she gets it out and they're playing their little cat and mouse, it's like, this is boring. Just be on each other's side already. It seems like the constant theme of this episode is buying time to the next conclusion, buying time to the next conclusion. 100%. We're just buying our time to the next conclusion. We know that they're going to unite together to help save the day and you know, defeat Hydra, rescue S.H.I.E.L.D., discover what they can about the Winter Soldier. We know we're going to get there, so that it takes so long is a little annoying. Yeah, basically, and it's not everything. Like, I enjoy the sequence of them being in the clearly not Apple store where they're trying to track down where the information came from, and they're playing spies, and Steve is so adorably virginal when he says, we're getting married. And then there's that kiss on the elevator. As we mentioned, uh, Natasha sexually harasses Steve in his workplace. And then we cut to Natasha and Steve in the car talking about straight stuff, which, you know, I wanted to be bothered by, but at the same time, like... I'm okay with straight people talking about their straight lives on film. I really am. I mean, they're both straight, and there's no reason that they shouldn't talk to each other about stuff like that. And I like that the kiss between them is really the end of any lingering romantic chemistry between Natasha and Steve. They're basically just buddies from here on. It's unfortunate that it takes either an implied flirtation or an implied relationship with nearly every man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe for Black Widow to finally stop bouncing from love interest to love interest. But there's the kisses with Steve where there's some intense flirtation. There's some energy there. She's initially deployed as a love interest for Tony Stark. She has a history with Hawkeye, whatever it is we don't quite understand. I think it might be somewhat clarified in Ultron, but I would not be surprised if on a mission somewhere along the way. And she definitely has a sexual relationship with the Hulk as much as somebody can have a sexual relationship with the Hulk. It just feels like it takes her flirting with every man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to run out of men for her to flirt with. This is part of the problem with putting so few female characters in these films. I understand that you guys want sex in your movies, but when you only have one female character for all of these males, that starts to become problematic. It absolutely does, because then it's whose turn is it with the lady character. And it becomes the perspective of the director, in a lot of ways, who that's seen through the lens of. Because John Favreau used Black Widow as an accessory sexual interest for Tony Stark. The Russo brothers applied her to Steve in situations in this film. She is used to that end by Whedon for the Hulk. It does seem like the director seems to go, mm, put her with the guy I see the world through the lens of. Yup. What you want, Bucky Dangan? What you want, Napai Dangan? What you want, Bucky Dangan? So we get to the barracks that Steve had his training at, and we meet the Max Headroom version of Arden Zola, and we finally get what the plot of this film is, which is, surprise, Hydra's still here, you're fucked. And it's not just that Hydra's still here, you're fucked, it's Hydra is still here, there, and everywhere, you are fucked, dicked, and cocked. Yeah, and, you know, as I've said, this, that's that's part of why I don't enjoy this film. I don't like villains like that. I don't like that sort of oppressive, there's literally nothing you can do, because then, really, there should have been nothing they could do to stop these villains. And it does begin to feel like a never-ending pile-up of, okay, we almost have it, okay, no, we almost have it, oh, but okay, now we almost, oh, my. And that is one of our big complaints that I feel like started in Thor The Dark World, but it's going to keep going. Mm. It's going to keep feeling because they need to add more and more villains each movie. And they have to keep raising the stakes. I in many ways think that Thor the Dark World is the last time the villain situation is that straightforward. 
I would say the closest I can think of that is that cut and dry is Spider-Man Homecoming with Vulture. But at the same time, it's a motivation that we can all understand because, you know, being hard-pressed by the economy. So it does seem, however, like Arnim Zola was not hard-pressed in the economy in, like, 1987 because his entire thing is, like, a giant Betamax room. And it has this really weird stylistic element that I kind of feel like maybe doesn't line up with the rest of the film in a way that, that really feels like an element of an earlier draft. Why does he have a USB plug that would perfectly fit this drive that they've been carrying around with them? On top of the fact that why would Natasha just plug that right the fuck in? That was so stupid. Don't you knock off the- I can't do it. I just can't even- I can't. I'm so sorry. I am- I- I am so sorry, Europe. I am so sorry. Let's get back to this damn movie. It's also worth noting here that this is where Cap seems to first learn that the Winter Soldier killed Howard and Maria Stark. At least that's what it seems that Zola is intimating when he flashes those news clippings and talks about the work that the Winter Soldier has done. So that's something that he's still going to hold on to up until Civil War. And it's really a weird thread. There's so many weird threads that they weave into this film to try and get us somewhere. Not the least of which is when we get to Sitwell, I am so glad you had us do the one-shots before getting to the Sitwell reveal because it really messed with my head seeing what they were trying to pull off. I absolutely don't think it was intentional. I cannot believe for a moment they always knew Sitwell would be evil. You know, I'm not sure, honestly. I would like to believe that if they knew the Hydra reveal was coming, they wanted to seed in agents who would be revealed to be Hydra. Obviously, they did that on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is a very bold move in your first season to take down the organization that your series is titled for and reveal that one of your major regulars is secretly a double agent. I also feel that that was one of the first moments where we said there is no chance that the TV and the movie studios know what the hell each other is doing. It was definitely the first indication for me because that's that's such a major... Yeah. It's a real mindfuck to the concept of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I think it's part of why S.H.I.E.L.D. took several years to develop the fan base it has now. And unfortunately, the scene where they're interrogating Sitwell also gives us another moment that tells us they aren't paying enough attention to their own movies, where Sitwell mentions that they're observing people like Stephen Strange. He has yet to become a sorcerer, so they're randomly just observing this renowned surgeon because he might be what kind of threat? It really makes no sense. He might help someone who's too good by fixing their hands too well. I do want to point out that one of my favorite things about that rooftop scene is we have the normal play of Cap being like, Yeah, you're right. I wouldn't push you off this roof, but Natasha might. And he's like, what? And Natasha's like, bite this! And pushes him right off the roof. And then they have this really casual, really attractive conversation in this very fun fucking friends kind of way. That's when my beautiful Falcon comes flying back into the picture and is like, nope, look, I'm here too. Did you forget about me? Oh yeah, I love that sequence where, you know, and again, heteronormativity, but if you're going to do it in a fun, positive way, sure. But the moment where she's like, what about that girl from accounting, Laura? And Cap's like, Lillian, with the lip piercing. Yeah, yeah, I'm not ready for that. Oh my god, it was one of the cutest fucking things they could have possibly done. And in a lot of ways, just having these three characters united 
working under Nick Fury with Maria Hill somewhere in the background, I actually kind of count this as an Avengers movie. It feels like Avengers light, but I am very comfortable calling this like Secret Avengers in so many ways. This movie sets up the idea that Cap could carry an Avengers film by name. I get that. I don't know if I would necessarily label it that way, but I definitely will say once Falcon gets thrown into the mix and we have this cute little team working together, the last half of this film is really so much more engaging and exciting than the first half, and I think a lot of that has to do with Sam. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with Bucky, who shows up, rips out a steering wheel, throws Sitwell into traffic, and shoots a bunch of people. And finally, for the first time in this entire film, at about 80 minutes in, speaks. It's actually why I don't feel bad being so critical of his involvement in this film. What's the time marker we're at? What, 120, we're at an hour and 23 minutes, an hour and 24 minutes? And it took how long to get to Bucky? It took how long to get to the character that the movie's named after? I, I know that I'm kind of being like, no, it's a titular character and they should get all the attention. And no, that's not what I'm saying. But don't tell me that this movie is about this character and name this character who, frankly, is just another random, generic, at this point, white supervillain, for lack of a better term. When there are so many more interesting characters, I don't need this to be called Captain America, the Winter Soldier. I would have preferred Captain America and the New Avengers from the way you're bringing in Sam, who's new to this. And frankly, I can tell already that Winter Soldier is going to be an Avenger from this. Like Captain America, Rise of Hydra, or something, anything would have been better. It bothered me so much seeing how little Sebastian Stan speaks in this film that I looked into it, and he speaks about 13 times in this entire movie. And in fact, due to this, Bucky Barnes surpasses Princess Aurora for second place on the list of Disney characters who speak the least in their titular film. Even though Aurora appears less on screen in her film at 18 minutes and her lines are all delivered inside of 20 minutes, the Winter Soldier literally doesn't say his first line until after the movie Sleeping Beauty would be done. Aurora speaks 18 times and has two songs, and yet here we are, Winter Soldier, never talking. Number one on that list, by the way, is of course Dumbo in his self-titled 1941 film. I find myself enamored of blue-eyed, big-eared, quiet guys, so, you know, I think Dumbo should be number one on every list. But beyond that, part of what I think makes me so annoyed about it, people really do take shots at Sleeping Beauty for being this lead character who has no lines, and the entire film is about Philip coming in to save her with the help of three magic fairies, and not trying to be anything, but let's actually apply that filter that makes Cap Philip, that makes Falcon... Nick Fury and Black Widow, his magic fairies, helping him to save his silent love partner who needs to be woken up from the spell. And saved from a giant dragon like Hydra. Wow. Okay, everybody, we need to take a step back and we need to talk about the Sleeping Soldier and uh, Prince Steve. Because I think, I think Captain America just became a Disney prince and I think my heart is all aflutter and I think I have a new cosplay to make. Can I get control? Do you like me vulnerable? I'm armed and I'm equal. More fun for the people. Physical, brute force. Still eyeing you the boss. Leave your soul doable. Grab me down, sugar salt. So Steve and Natasha are captured, and then it turns out, haha, they're not because Maria Hill is a badass. And then it turns out, haha, Nick Fury isn't dead because 
why not? He was dead, I counted, for about 50 minutes of this film, until he shows up and Joe Russo declares that he's fine. And it's so nice of Joe Russo to come in and clarify anything that we might not have understood. While most Marvel Cinematic Universe writer-directors would leave you to have to read the tie-in comic or watch the one-shot, he just wants to show up and reassure you, this confusing part of the plot, it's this. Yeah, basically, so they bum around trying to figure out what to do. We see Pierce trying to get a mission report out of Bucky, which I actually, watching again this time, thought was a really cute, like, foreshadowing of all of the Baron Zemo stuff we're going to get in Civil War and Mission Report, how that became a meme. It's really cool to see it foreshadowed here in this film. Okay, I didn't even think about it until you said something about Baron Zemo in Civil War, but I just realized that I think I have more compassion for Baron Zemo in Civil War than I have for Bucky at any point in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I don't think that's attractive. (laughs) They did a too good a job making me feel really bad for Zemo. It's not that I don't feel bad for Bucky, but even in this scene, he is so void of emotion, which unfortunately is part of the character. He's, He's a shell here, so I feel bad for him. But I know that his pain isn't the same as Baron Zemo. I imagine when he gets delivered to Wakanda, they sort of just erase all that crap from his head and, like, just make it okay in there. Baron Zemo's not going to get that, for sure. (laughs) Even though Baron Zemo will go on to lead his own team of good guy Avengers known as the Thunderbolts, I don't see that happening in this Marvel Cinematic Universe (laughs) as much as I love the Thunderbolts. Back to the movies, though. I guess there's nothing left to do now but push into the final act of this film. We open with a stameo of Stan as a security guard at the Smithsonian who was supposed to be guarding Captain America's costume that he breaks out of captivity for the mission and they dive right in. It's interesting that he has to break out this costume because we couldn't quite figure out why it was such a big deal to get this costume, but I believe you said that in your research you found that it was because he had to dodge the tracker that was on his old one. Yeah, it's like there's a deleted scene that explains it or something. And that was the role that Hawkeye was supposed to play. They were able to remove Hawkeye with Stan Lee. Yeah, I guess so. Then we get a cameo by community alum Danny Pudi. Yeah, that was a really cute moment. He's just such an odd-looking man that it really stands out when he pops up places. But it was a nice thing for the Russo brothers to do. So I know we haven't talked too much about Crossbones, but Rumlow's still running around in the background, and... He actually has a pretty interesting moment with Sharon where the two of them kind of face off for kind of like half a second before he's dumped off on fighting the Falcon later on. Yeah, but it was a really cool moment for Sharon Carter. I believe that is the only thing that justifies how lame she is throughout the rest of the film. And what was funny to see was the other actresses who were considered for the role. And, you know, I don't know that I could necessarily see Alison Brie or Felicity Jones or Anna Kendrick standing up against Crossbones the same way. That would have definitely made a very different film. I agree. And that's not to say that we don't love the idea of any woman getting to be strong and powerful, because there's that amazing reveal where, out of nowhere, the older stateswoman of the group that's been meeting with Pierce the whole movie just starts kicking everyone's ass and tries to take down Pierce, and it's revealed, ah ha ha, it's the Black Widow all along. And she's just been wearing a mask this whole scene, a digital mask that makes her look like an old lady. Yeah, I was ultimately disappointed by that scene when we first saw it in theaters because I just thought this older councilwoman was a badass. So when it turned out to be Natasha, I was like, oh, oh, oh. It was funny to see that technology, though, because the bits of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that we did watch 
that weird like digital face mask technology is a huge factor in the plot at certain points. So it's funny to see the ways that it does and does not connect into the MCU. While that's going on, Cap is still doing the completely unrelated Bucky storyline, and it's just all a little bit too much on top of itself. Cap's fighting Bucky, and he's trying to stop these ships by plugging in these cards, and it does that Marvel Cinematic Universe thing that we constantly see, where it just quickly devolves into punch-punch real hard. Yeah, I wrote down that the scene ultimately comes across for me a lot like Bucky's expression most of the film. Blank, empty, and like we're supposed to care, but it's hard to. One of the things that stands out from the end of this movie is, so Nick Fury makes jokes about being blind in one eye, and he, uh, oh, there's this moment where it's revealed that Pierce has deleted Nick Fury's eye code from the computer, so he's like, ah ha and just flips up his eye patch and uses his other eye. And I I don't know if I find that cute, funny, or just weird. Or like ableist, maybe? I don't know what that move is. I don't really know what to make of it. But I'm I'm happy for Samuel L. Jackson to get these moments. I feel like his introduction where he like slowly walks in from the helipad takes way too long and is clearly taking consideration of the fact that he's in his sixties. But, you know, still And I hate to sound kind of like I'm bored, but I literally do check out at this point because the defeat of Pierce is super duper removed from so much of the action. It's this separate little thing that's happening. And then Nick Fury just like shoots the fucking hell out of him. He just like shoots him up good. It's really intense how much he shoots him. And Cap and the Bucky stuff. And it's again, I don't even have like a problem reading Cap as emotionally invested in Bucky I really don't think they give us anything to love in Bucky he has 104 words and there's not enough personality in that we're told that it matters because Steve grew up with him and has affection for him and I get that but I can't support it here Bucky is kind of and I don't want to say mindless monster but he's literally programmed to just be an abuser and he's psychologically not in one piece he's not a whole person for me to want that here i don't think that they do a good job at all of making us sympathetic of bucky they make us care about cap and the things he cares about and bucky falls under that but as for bucky himself as a character other than man is tortured They don't give us a lot to connect with him emotionally. The only scene that we get where he's not the Winter Soldier is a flashback that really is more about Steve and the fact that his mom just died than it is about Bucky. One of the things that Stucky fandom really latched onto from this film was that line of, You're my mission. It's one of his only 13 lines in this movie. I'm really glad you got something that does sort of work on a shippy level. But if he hadn't said that one line, the only other thing you would have had to latch on to was, who the hell is Bucky? And this is going to be me maybe coming off a little bit not attractive, but I don't always read Bucky and Steve's past relationship as super sweet and sentimental. There's an attitude, and maybe it's just I'm reading into it, but a lot of times I do see Bucky as kind of like, oh, I'm going to take care of Steve again. There's almost an older brother stuck with his younger brother. And there is something about the idea, if we recontextualize it for one moment, as Bucky is the last link to Steve's youth. Bucky is the last thing that connects him to the moment before he became Cap, and it catapulted him forward 70 years. 
there's there's something about it that I actually don't love Bucky. I don't hate the idea, but I just don't think this Bucky in 104 words gave me anything that made me think he cared more about Steve than he did last movie. Well, and it's important to know that the one scene where we actually see Bucky as Bucky, for as cute as it is when he's saying that Steve can come stay with them for a little while, and he's like, we'll set up the couch cushions on the floor like when we were kids. And then he's like, you know, I don't mind. You're just going to have to, like, shine my shoes and take out the trash. And, like, he's kidding. Obviously, he's kidding. But one of the few bits of characterization that you're giving us for this man is him jokingly bullying his smaller friend Steve in an older brotherish way. It's not deeply sympathetic. Because I bet that's the same shit that other people say to Steve. I bet other guys are like, I'm going to make you shine my shoes, bitch. And I get that we're supposed, I don't know. I don't think Bucky is a fully realized character. And it's why something I thought that was really shocking in Infinity War, not to spoil things for anybody, but he gets dusted and it just comes out of nowhere. It's it just comes out of nowhere. It's almost as if Bucky is meant to be the loss to Steve that Peter was to Tony in that, oh, I care for this person kind of way. But there was no Bucky Steve leading up to that in the final film. Just so much of their relationship is what we don't see in disjointed ways that they're telling us to accept and run with. And I just don't think enough of their any kind of relationship is there. It's one of those things where I think it's there if you want to read it, but it's not as explicit as people would like to think. Part of why I keep pointing to heterosexual visibility and homosexual subtext is there's about as much characterization in the character of Bucky as we frequently get with queer characters being portrayed as romantic in major films like this. It's saying that both are a problem, honestly. And then it's over, he pulls Steve out of the river, and it's over, and we get a montage of everyone moving on with their lives. A lot of those sequences were actually filmed after the fact, once they knew better where all the characters needed to be set up for Ultron. So things like Maria going to work for Stark Tech, etc. It's really cool, a lot of the things that are in the end of this film that I feel set up things like Ultron and Civil War. Fury mentions how a lot of rats didn't go down with the ship when it comes to Hydra, and then we get the mid-credits sequence, so we see that to bridge the gap between here and there and see why they were going after all these hydra agents black widow's scene at her hearing where she says you need us and if you want to arrest me you can arrest me it's the first real spark that we see of civil war where they're almost antagonizing the authority figures to come after them for all the things they're doing i also thought it was really weird that sam is so ready to help cap find bucky when we see how antagonistic they are of each other but i digress there it's really funny because they, I believe, are getting a TV series on Disney Plus this year or next year. So keep an eye out for connections between Bucky and Sam, which they are very competitive for Steve's affection and attention and the very little we get of them. But we're not there yet. That's Civil War. You know, it makes me wonder, knowing that Emily Van Camp has TV experience, whether or not they're going to try to rope Sharon Carter into that as well. They go out of their way to mention her at the very end of this film, and I was... It really took me out of the ending, honestly. I was like, wait, you're acting like Sharon was important in this movie? She wasn't, you know, unimportant, but it just felt so random. And if it wasn't for the fact that she's a significant character from the comics, I don't think it would have been in there. I think they were trying to set up something very close to the MCU version of the Ed Brubaker run, from which they have taken nearly all of their canon. So I do agree with you that they were definitely trying to set something up with her, I just 
don't think it ever really came together because they didn't have the time to focus on the emotional things they were trying to focus on. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of setup as well, they needed to make sure they could cap off this film with references to what is coming next. We have that mid credit sequence with the twins. So, I have a lot of emotional relationship with the X-Men, as you might have noticed from my X-Men podcast. Something that's really important to note is I am very displeased with the amount of change the comic canon to match the movie canon they go out of their way to do like every single time a movie comes out. This led to some weird changes for the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, both of whom had been abused well more than enough up through now. But to look at it is just this film with no outside things. I got nothing from this. If I did not know who Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver were, I would not have given a shit. I don't think we really got anything from this end credit scene other than Joss Whedon saying, no, get excited, I'm coming back and here are my toys. Yeah, I don't get nothing from this one exactly, but I certainly don't get, like, extra hype. It's like, it's cool to get a hint of what's to come, but it's not the same significance that I think they were going for. It's really funny and interesting to note, though, that this is the second MCU film in a row to have its mid credit sequence be directed by the next director after it once removed. It makes sense with what you said about the ending of this movie being used to generate setups for Ultron. They started to take a look at where they could make these movies more malleable to help set up the next film. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of next movies, all right, Guardians of the Galaxy. This one's kind of tough. We are a bit more critical than most people of Guardians of the Galaxy. I'll be honest, most of the things that I like about Guardians of the Galaxy is probably the stuff that they stole from sci-fi's Farscape. I also have always been a pretty big Chris Pratt fan, and seeing him get fit after my fitness journey and seeing how great he, you know, was able to move his body toward being super awesome. Unfortunate that the cast, for me, is deeply colored by the We'll get to it. The controversy surrounding Guardians of the Galaxy in many ways color the content of the film because of the content of the film. I mean, obviously, we're going to have to talk about the James Gunn stuff next episode, so I'm really sorry for any of our viewers who aren't super into hearing about it, but it it's it's a part of it, and that's what we're looking at. Absolutely. But until then, Kevo, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. Don't forget, you can always check out our awesome, hyper-inclusive comic, Riot Squad, over at Kid Riot Comics, where it's running alongside the first season of its sister title, Capes and Boots, featuring an all-women team running a news station. You don't want to miss either of those. As always, you can check out our other amazing shows here on the Cage Club Network, like X's for Podcast, where we, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle, examine the X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one. You can also check me out on Now and Again, where I take a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series with my best friend Chris. Don't forget to check out the other amazing shows here on Cage Club, as well as the Patreon, and you can help decide what the team does next. You can also check me out being half-naked on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Alright, Kevo, until it's time to guard the galaxy, we'll see you next time. Normally this is where I'd say something clever, but in honor of Bucky's silence, I am instead going to say... <laughs>